The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. That's right. Well, Merry Christmas, y'all. Merry Christmas. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 10, verse 17. Mark 10, 17 is where we'll be as we continue moving through the book of Mark, asking the question that we've been asking for several weeks, who is this Messiah? Who is this Messiah? And since Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah, the reigning, ruling, long-awaited king back in chapter 8, and then God confirmed it on Mount Hermon through the transfiguration, and we got that glimpse of his glory. Uh, Since that time, Jesus has been teaching us some weighty lessons about following him, hasn't he? The last few weeks have maybe been some of those gut check weeks, right? as we've learned what it means to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus has been testing our perceptions. He's been testing our motivations about uh, what it means to follow Jesus in these days. And you know what's Kind of, maybe you're familiar with this, authors, other pastors, teachers have called these sayings of Jesus the hard sayings of Jesus. Are you familiar with that? the hard sayings of Jesus. And what's, it, it's interesting as we get into here, you, you, like nobody can really accuse Jesus of hoodwinking anybody, right? Like he, he doesn't just promise one thing and deliver another. He hasn't promised that life would be uh, just a cakewalk, a life of ease and comfort and convenience. No, he, he makes it very clear that the path to heaven is clear, albeit hard. The cost of following Jesus is great, but the reward is greater, as we've just sung. And in today's passage, a man will approach Jesus with a great enthusiasm and zeal. He's a man that I think we would probably want to be friends with, at least I would. He seems like a, a man full of, uh, you know, vinegar. He's a man that's uh, personable and likable. I would want to be his friend. And he even comes and asks Jesus a, a, the million-dollar question. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Maybe we should read the passage. Should we do that? Yeah. Let's read it. Look at your copy of God's Word, Mark 10. I'll pick it up in verse 17 and read through verse 31. Listen to God's word. This is speaking of Jesus, and he was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to them, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word for God's people. What are you thinking right now, having heard God's word? What's the thought in your mind? What's the, the, the feeling in your gut? Whatever it might be, write it, I would just encourage you, write it there at the top of your notes. Are you shocked at these words? Shocked like the disciples? Are you sorrowful like the man? Are you comforted, confused, indifferent, humbled, angry, skeptical? Hearing God's word, hearing Christ's teaching to this man, what comes to mind? Write it at the top of your notes. You know, we could sum up this passage like this. The reward of following Jesus cannot be bought nor earned. The reward for following Jesus cannot be bought nor earned. I think that's the main theme. That's what Jesus is telling us. And so we have some questions about what the reward is and then how do we attain it? Can we even attain it if it cannot be bought nor earned? These are some hard sayings. The account begins here, our passage begins with Jesus packing up and setting out on his journey. Right? Can't you just kind of put yourself in there? And I don't know that Jesus had like suitcases or whatever, but look at verse 17, he was getting to set out on his journey where he's been, as remember, east of the Jordan River. He's uh, making his way back south. And, and what we're gonna find as we continue our, our, our study here, as we continue working our way through Mark, we're gonna find that he is now making his way west into Jerusalem. He's about to, we're about to get into Jesus' uh, really last days of his earthly life and his earthly ministry and he's packing up and he's heading out on this journey and all we're told here in verse 17 is that a man approaches him. A man approaches him and calls him good teacher. He addresses him as the good teacher and as the good teacher, he takes advantage of the teachable moment and he really educates us in three ways. If you're taking note, here's our first lesson from the good teacher and it is this, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. The man here, he doesn't just really stroll up to Jesus casually, does he? Look at verse 17. He, he doesn't just kind of stroll up. What does he do? He runs up and he kneels before Jesus. I, as I was thinking about this, I was, I was actually thinking of like a, you know, a, a linoleum floor, maybe a tile floor, and he like runs up like a kid and hits his knees and slides in. He's like making a grand entrance. 
Now, maybe it's not quite like that, but whatever he does, he runs up and he kneels. He is making a grand entrance. We, we see kind of his enthusiasm to approach Jesus, whether he sees because Jesus is about to leave and he wants to catch him, we don't necessarily know, but he comes to Christ and we get a sense really of who this guy is. He's a passionate man, expressive. He doesn't just kind of, you know, you know, kind of stealthily sneak up to Jesus and, you know, casually engage him in the conversation. No, he is uh, confident as he approaches Jesus. We get a sense that he's charming as well. By calling Jesus a good teacher, this was really actually uncommon of somebody to address anybody in that culture, especially a rabbi. Now, if a, a rabbi, a teacher, they would address him as teacher, which is what he will do in a few verses. He will just drop the good and add teacher. But what is he doing here? He's really flattering Jesus. He is a, he's a charmer. He's a flatterer. He's an achiever. He, he is one that as uh, Jesus begins to engage him that ha- keeps his life in order, that he has these check boxes and he is living a life making sure that all the boxes are checked. He's probably type A. He's probably an Enneagram 8, I would guess. I think so. I, I don't really know Enneagram, but... He's wealthy, we know that for sure. He's told in verse 22 that he has great possessions. In Luke's account, in Luke 18, we're told that he is a ruler. So he's both affluent and influential. He is wealthy and powerful. And now he comes to Christ asking this million dollar question, what must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or what must I do to be saved? And this is like a, a situation that if we were to find ourselves in, we would be, we'd be flipping out, right? If, a, if this morning at church, somebody like pulled into that guest parking lot there in a Lamborghini, you know, and he, had, he was decked out and he came in and uh, you could just obviously tell the, you know, the, the lifestyle that he lives. And then he came in and he approached you at the coffee line out there and said, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We'd be like flipping out, right? Like we need this guy in our church, right? We need him around. Don't just pass them off to me, by the way. And say, oh, go talk to the pastor. You tell him. How are we saved? And we'd be like, this is awesome. But is it? And look at how Jesus talks to him. Let's look a little bit closer here. Jesus' answer in verse 18 to the million-dollar question. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that phrase and that reply he is acknowledging two different things is jesus uh, denying his deity is he saying that he is not god no quite the contrary first he's acknowledging that he is god he's like why do you call me good are you saying that i am god and second what he is doing is he is is laying out there that there is no one who is good this this idea that no one is good except god alone lays it out there in what the scripture teaches, really from cover to cover, that there is none who are good. There's no wiggle room in his answer. He's saying, why, why do you call me good? No one is good, only God is good. And to prove it, verse 19, he begins to lay out the, just the back half of the 10 commandments. Why does he list these out? I think he lists them out because they're measurable, right? They're measurable. He, he begins to uh, reply to the man with, the, with these commandments. He's saying, do not murder. And the guy's saying to himself, yeah, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't killed. I do not commit adultery. You know, I'm faithful to my wife. I've been faithful. I've never 
been unfaithful, do not steal. No, all my possessions I've gotten on my own. I haven't got them uh, uh, illegally. He says, do not bear false witness. So I haven't lied. I haven't, uh, I haven't told uh, any other uh, things that are untrue. I haven't gossiped. He's uh, check. I haven't done that. Do not defraud. No, I haven't coveted. I haven't uh, taken something that doesn't belong to me. Honor your father and mother. Yeah, I've been uh, sending my parents, you know, birthday cards on their birthdays since, you know, I was a kid. Check, 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 check. He's kept all six of these since he came of age, since his bar mitzvah. And so what does he think? He says, teacher, I've done it. I've done it. I'm good enough. And then Jesus lays out really one command to really, I'd say, test his obedience to the first four commands, to love the Lord and have no idols. And look at what, look at how it says this in verse 21. Jesus looks at him. He peers into his soul and loves him. Underline that so you never miss that again. And loves him enough to say the hard things. This is what the Bible talks about, speaking the truth in love. He looks at the man. He gazes upon this man in a way that maybe no one has ever looked at him. And he says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And the man with great joy says, I'll do it. It's done. I'll leave it all behind and come and follow you. Is that what it says? And love, Jesus lets the man walk away. The cost was too much. His possessions meant too much. And, and here's the sad part is the man walks away <laughs> grieved over the wrong thing. He walks away sorrowful because he had many possessions that had a hold of his heart. And when he should have been grieved about his inability to save himself, he's now grieved over losing his stuff. When lovingly confronted with his depravity and his inability to save himself, he rejects it. And see, here's, here's the hard reality for us. You, you can come to the right person and even ask the same, seemingly right question and reject the answer. You can dismiss the answer See, our sin is a, is a big problem. The, the fact that we are not good enough is a, is a massive blow to our worldview. Everything in America's tongue is about how great we are. Our, our presuppositions about uh, the way that just American uh, thought works is built on the supposition, the presupposition that we are inherently good. And the scripture, page after page from the very words of Jesus here is saying, no, we are not. Therefore, this thought that we are basically good people must be rejected if we want to be happy, healthy, and holy. If we want to inherit eternal life, the first step is to say, I'm not good enough. 
I cannot save myself. To say it another way, we must, uh, when Jesus says the first step is to deny yourself, we must deny our self-righteousness. This, this bent in our hearts that says that, that I'm good and I can do it and surely Jesus would want me on his team because I bring all of these great gifts. I bring all of this goodness. I, I can do these good things and Christ is saying, no, you are not. And that is the first step, church. This is the first step to coming to Christ. We must come like a dependent child not like an independent rich man. So if you remember, where did our passage end last week? What's the context here? Who did, who did Jesus say would receive the kingdom of God? Those that come like a child. And right after it, he includes this, this contrasting picture of what it does not mean to come to Christ and receive the kingdom of God like a child. We come dependent. We come humbled knowing that we cannot save ourselves. See, this is, this is just the first lesson, but the second lesson here is we feel the heaviness. Here's the second lesson from the good teachers. I can't do enough. Not only are we not good enough, I can't do enough. The, the man, he walks away and it's, you can almost picture the disciples like standing there like everybody's looking at each other. And Jesus, he looks around too. You know, everyone's just like, you can see they're all packing up. This man comes and now he leaves and disciples are all standing like, what, and what, what? Did that really just happen? Like, don't we want him on our team, Jesus? And you just let him like stroll away? Imagine how much ministry he could fund. Imagine like we could use his, his influence, his celebrity. You're just gonna let him walk there. Jesus is looking around at each other too. I almost, as I was studying this, I almost kind of organized the passage in the many looks of Jesus. Did you notice how Mark does this in this passage? You have his look of compassion when he loves the man, his look of love. He looks around here and the look of confrontation. You have uh, then later when he has the look of instruction in verse 27. But Jesus, this isn't just like, hey, I'm looking at you. This is the peering gaze of the Messiah into our soul. And he looks at them and he says these two shocking statements. You see it? how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then look at the, the disciples' response in verse 24. They're amazed, right? Like, what? And then he takes it one step further because their like, eyes are, are wide. And then Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were What? exceedingly astonished. There's like greater degrees of shock as Jesus gives the greater degrees of difficulty. First he says it's difficult and then in his illustration he says it's impossible. Is it impo- Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Oh, it's absurd, isn't it? And it's meant to be absurd. As the, to those that living in that day, the camel was the biggest animal that they had in their perception. You know, it was just the, the biggest one. That's why he's talking about it. And the, the, the eye of a needle, the smallest hole. I mean, even smaller than this little thing here. All you ladies that sew and all that stuff, that's small, right? 
You can't get a camel through an eye of a needle, nor can we get and save ourselves and get into heaven. It's not only difficult, it's impossible. And so they are shocked, exceedingly astonished. There is zero confusion here about what Jesus is teaching. They may not like it, but he is clear. It is impossible to save yourself. You can't do enough. And their response at the end of verse 26 is appropriate. Then who can be saved? And if our passage was to end in verse 26 here, we would be hopeless because we are helpless. We would be hopeless because we are helpless. I'm not good enough. I can't do enough. Then who can be saved? And in verse 27 here, this final look of Jesus, he offers all the hope and help we need. We are not good enough, nor can we do enough, but who is? God is. And Jesus would do what was required See, don't miss the glory of the good news here. He says, with you, yes, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, here is our hope. Just like it was, we saw the same phrase about uh, all things being possible for the one who believes. Now he's putting before us the object of our faith, the one whom all things are possible with, and that is God. Christ, who was the only good person. Christ, who was the one who could only do all the law perfectly. Christ, who was the one who lived the perfect life in our place. See, life is not hopeless. Yes, we are helpless when we uh, cast ourselves on Christ. Then all things are possible, including inheriting eternal life. Try to save yourself, won't happen. You can't do enough. You won't ever balance the scales. It doesn't work like that. You commit one sin and you're guilty of them all. See, the only thing that we bring to the equation in our salvation is our sin. We don't bring our righteousness. We don't bring our, our achievements. We must actually deny our self-achievements. We must deny our self-attainments. We must desi- uh, deny this uh, desire to try to do things our way. We come to Christ and all we bring is our sin and that is precisely what qualifies us to be saved. And we hand it over to Christ and he takes it and he said, I've, I've covered this. My death on the cross will pay the ransom. My death for you. I'll stand in your place. This is the good news. This is the good news, but we must lay down this desire to try to earn God's favor, to try to merit his attention. We must deny our self-attainment, which is really why Jesus talks about money in this way. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is what he's saying uh, really truly about, you know, like rich people not being able to get into heaven. I mean, he's talking about it, but he's using it as an illustration because money is a, money is a, it's a tool. It's a measurement of our ability to achieve, or so we think. And so Jesus' point isn't necessarily about money and its connection to salvation, but in, in the, the, that it's a thermometer 
It's a thermometer of our heart temperature towards the Lord and our priorities. Where we spend our money is a a reflection of where our priorities lie. Where we, want, where we uh, love to uh, see things happen. Jesus taught about this in the parable of the mount, right? In Matthew 6, 21, what does he say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He'll continue on in the same teaching. He'll say, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money makes a terrible master, y'all. Money makes a terrible master. I've said this before and bears repeating here, it's not wrong to have money, but it is wrong for money to have you. It's not wrong to have it, but it is wrong for money to have you. And that goes for all of us here. This isn't just a rich person problem, it's for all of us. All of us in here, if you drove to church this morning, if you know you'll have some meals this week, if you have shoes on your feet and some more in your closet, this is for all of us. See, all of us are tempted to love the wrong things, and that includes money. Whether we have a lot or a little, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil, right? That's what uh, Paul tells Timothy. That's how he describes it, and look how he even describes the situation here. This is 1 Timothy 6.10. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, the craving for more, the craving uh, for my possessions, that some have wandered away from the faith, or even rejected it outright, and pierced themselves with many pangs. The man walked away sorrowful, grieved. Hold on to money and it will fail you. But here's his charge to us. This is verse 17, 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. It is not to be prideful. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And go away like that. But set our hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That which is truly life. See, the passage here isn't necessarily just about the wealthy. It's for all of us. You want to be saved? You want to inherit eternal life? I hope you do. I don't know why you would be here if not. Well, eternal life can't be bought nor can be earned because we're not good enough nor can we do enough. And yet, here's the thing, when we deny our self-righteousness, when we deny our self-attainment, when we take up our cross and follow Christ, then here's the third lesson. The reward is more than enough. The reward is more than enough. We're not good enough. We can't do enough to earn it. And yet, there is still a reward Look, he, Jesus puts out these, these hard sayings. He teaches these hard lessons. And then look at verse 28. Then, you know, the Apostle Peter, we love him, right? He said some great things here. You can kind of see, it says he began to say to him. You hear almost the, uh, how tentative he is to ask the question here, right? He's been rebuked before. He said some, uh, you know, some kind of boneheaded things up to this point, and he's going to say a few more things. But you can kind of, with this, he begins to say, you know, well, we, we've, we've done this. We, we've left everything and followed you. 
After hearing teach, Jesus teach, really, I don't think he's boasting. I don't even think he's like fishing for, you know, like some compliments. He's just trying to clarify, well, is what you're saying what we've done? And you see the kindness and the tenderness towards Jesus to commend them, beginning in verse 29. Yes, truly, there's a far greater reward now and in the time to come for those who've left everything to follow Jesus. And he lays it out here, really, the cost of following Christ and the reward. So Jesus goes after all these things. This is why it's not just about money because he's, he's, he's pressing into the things that we hold on to far too often. Things like a big house, things like success, things like our, our children, our, our, our family of origin, these, these things that, that we, we hold on to and, and, and the call to come and follow Christ is to, to, to be willing to give it all up for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the gospel. And so here's the cost. You give up success if you leave your house, your brother, sisters, mom, father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, then there comes the reward. And so don't miss that part. It's leaving those things for the sake of the gospel. You know, maybe some of us in, in here, or we can't wait for this day, but we're like, I'm ready to get out of my house and say, peace out, mom and dad, and go to college, right? <laughs> we are ready to just leave a job because it uh, doesn't make us happy or whatever. We think, oh, I'm leaving it behind for you, Christ. No, he's, he's saying when we do these things for the sake of the gospel, when we say, you know what, I'm not going to live in the, uh, the size of house or in the neighborhood that I could live in because I want to be able to give more. I'm, going to, uh, I'm willing to leave my, uh, my parents and my hometown because God has called me to uh, something. And this isn't just for like the call for you know, uh, missionaries or ministers. This can be the call for all of us. God, if you're sending me here, then give me gospel opportunity. If I'm moving, if I'm leaving these things behind, I want to do it for your sake to show that the cost of following Christ is worth it and for those that do look at verse 30 there's returns back to you a hundredfold now homes family property and even persecution and so what's Jesus talking about here is he, is, is he teaching a prosperity gospel? Leave it all behind and it you will come back on you in a hundredfold. Now you can have a bigger house. Now you can have uh, more children. Now you can have more land. Is that what he's talking about? No, I, he's, what he's talking about here is the church, the family of believers, the uncommon community that we have. How do we have a hundredfold ho- homes and uh, family members, siblings, mothers, children, lands? How do we have these things? It's because you can go to any corner of the earth and find a believer there and you will have a home to stay in. Within this house, you, or within even our church family here, you have, you know, Mikasa, Sukasa, right? We have homes that we can enjoy, property. We have more brothers and sisters. You might leave one home and now you've got access to the heavenly homes. Now you've got, you have to leave behind a few brothers and sisters and now you literally have thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions. I don't know how they calculate all those numbers, but uh, millions of believers around the globe. Go to you know, just about any corner of the earth and you will have a home and brothers and sisters that share a love for Christ for you to be safe and encouraged and edified in the faith. Property, things, this, this building is a part of that, yeah? We collectively, this is our church, y'all, right? This is our church, it's our building. We have moved into it, it's not mine. 
Some people say that to me sometimes. I want to come to your church. This is your church. No, 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 it's not. And you don't want it to be mine. It's Christ's church. Redemption is Jesus' church, isn't it? It's not mine. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's Jesus' church. We get these rewards. And look what, look what it just kind of slipped in there. You see that at the end of verse 30? With what? With persecutions. So we have all these things, but he's not necessarily promising the easy, comfortable, convenient life, is he? with persecutions, and yet, as counterintuitive as it is, even persecutions are a blessing for the sake of Christ. Back in Matthew 5, Jesus lays this out in the Beatitudes. You're probably familiar with it, right? Blessed are you, this is Matthew 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As odd as it may seem when we are following Christ and reviled for it, it is both a blessing and puts us in some great company such has been the case for God's people from all ages. And that, beloved, this is just in the here and now. And then in the age to come, eternal life with all the joy that comes with that being with Christ forever. Because we would be remiss to get to the end of this and to think that just the stuff, the material possessions that we would uh, receive would be the greatest reward. Because what is the greatest treasure of this whole passage? What is the greatest reward? It's Christ himself. It is Christ himself. See, the call is to come follow me, to be in his presence both here and now and for eternity. The joy of knowing Christ, the joy of having him at our side, the joy of walking with him, the joy of having his direction, the joy of having his encouragement, the joy of having his rebuke, the joy of having his exhortation, the joy of just being in his presence in all his glory. See, there's nothing greater than that. It it is to be called Christ's friend, to be called Christ's brother is far greater than to be called like my friend or your brother. To leave all of those things behind and to gain Christ is the greatest reward of all. And so the options here are clear. You can have the first chair now in your company. You can have the first chair. You can have the first position to be ranked high here and now and last forever. Or you can be seen as last here and now and first forever. And so the call here, the call as we say that Christ is the reward that is greater than all. The call is then to deny yourself, to deny your self-interests and accrue heavenly interests, to deny your success and take up your cross and follow Christ and then receive more than you can imagine. Beloved, let me just say it again. The reward is more than enough. And church, this is good news, is it not? This is good news that let let us not be confused or conflicted about what to do. This is, we come to Christ here. We can either hold on to our possessions, we can hold on to our positions, our popularity, our people, and end in sorrow, or we can hold on to Christ and receive more than enough. 
We can start with enthusiasm and end in grief because the cost is great, or we can start with grief over our sin and end with eternal joy with Christ. So which is the better investment? You know the answer. It's to gain Christ and lose your life brings the greatest possible return. Amen? Amen. This is good news, church. Let me pray for you now. God in heaven, um, these are some heavy, hard words, and yet they are sweet. They are, are, are sweet words. They're a sweet reminder for us as we realize that you are more than enough. And so God, as, as, as we're sorting these things out in our mind today, as we've sat under your word and we've, we've heard these truths, we've heard your call, God, would you, uh, God, uh, would you remove whatever confusion, whatever obstacles there are that we might come and follow you wholeheartedly? Jesus, it's, we, we just confess it's easy to say these things. It's easy to, to, to be about this and yet to, and yet to be hesitant. And yet when, when we're faced with a decision, yet when, when things do get difficult in a relationship, at work, in our marriage, it's easy to say and hard to do. And so would you, by your spirit, give grace even this morning? Be kind and tender to us today, God. You are so merciful. Look upon us now by your spirit and love us in a way that only you can do. So we're here, we're before you, God. We want to respond to you in worship. Pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, this next uh, song is a song of response, uh, and it's a new one to us as far as singing it congregationally. You might be familiar with it if you listen to vertical worship, but I think this song is a good uh, uh, reply. It's a good response to the truth that we have just heard, and so as uh, uh, the worship team leads us in, I'm just going to ask that we sit and I may ask us to stand as we go, but you can sing if you know the song, but otherwise just think about what you've heard what you wrote maybe at the beginning, at the top of your notes, if those feelings are still there, if they've changed, if they are leading you uh, towards a heart of worship towards the Lord. And so you can sing and we can worship, but let this be a time where God is working by his spirit through his word as we sing to him now.